Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking with today's episode. So this one's going to be all about the uh, Minicon, the UFO identified Minicon Preston 2021. So this was uh, an event quite local to me actually over the last few days, uh, which was actually put together by uh, the ufoidentified.co.uk, which is a, an, an organisation a website which is uh, set up to look at ufos obviously as the name would suggest and um for anybody who, who is not aware i'm based in the north of the uk around the manchester area basically um i've kind of lived in in and around manchester all my life and uh this event actually took place in preston which is not far from uh, the manchester area it's about half an hour's drive so it's literally on my doorstep so when i heard about this obviously decided that I had to go to it because you can't miss something like that when it's on your doorstep. So I thought what we'd do for today is have a bit of a look at my experiences of attending the event and um, some of my thoughts and analysis about the conversations I had with people and, and some of the actual presentations that were given as well uh, and, and just go through all of that really. So um, I just wanted to say, first of all, big thank you to Ash Ellis and Abigail Hislop. I believe those are the two people. Hopefully I've got that the right way around and, and it's the, the right people and stuff. But I believe um, those are the two people who were mainly in, in charge of actually putting this all together. I know Ash Ellis uh, definitely was and, and, and Abigail Hislop, but there may be other people as well that I wasn't aware of. But big thanks to those guys, basically, for putting this on because uh, it was it was a great event it was really good it was it was over quite some uh, period of time it was yeah i think i got there about half past two something like that and it went on till 10 o'clock at night so it was really a full day event and um, for me personally i've never been to anything like that before i've been to kind of like um you know the kind of conventions conferences whatever it's uh, whatever you class it as for other things like to do with music or cars or whatever but never for anything to do with ufos and didn't really know what to expect and that kind of thing um, but i was really quite pleasantly surprised i was kind of half expecting to turn up and you'd have loads of people looking into crystal balls and talking about love and light and you know a lot of kind of uh, things uh, along that lines but um, obviously there may have been some small elements of that but you know each to their own anyway because I, I think i think all of that is quite interesting but I was quite uh, pleasantly surprised by the 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 broad range of, of different areas of the UFO topic that a lot of the people in attendance were interested in. It wasn't kind of just one thing. There were a lot of different uh, areas that people were specialising in and talking about. And overall, it was it was a great experience. So um, it was literally like when you arrived there around about two o'clock. Um, I got there a bit late actually because I had to work earlier in the day and then I arrived. I actually unfortunately missed the first bit of uh, Graham Rendell's um, talk but managed to catch uh, the majority of it I think so that was that was good but initially there was a, everybody arrived and then there was a um, Graham Rendell uh, gave his uh, his presentation. And then there was a little break and then another presentation. And then there was like a, a slightly longer break where there was food available as well. And then uh, there was uh, another presentation, a little break, and then a final presentation. And I think there was uh, some um, like social socializing time uh, right at the end as well. And uh, when, when I arrived, I got given a goodie bag and a, and a little uh, lanyard to put around my neck with my name on it, which was great. And again, just really nice attention to detail to get that, you know, a few little goodies and trinkets in the goodie bag and you know leaflets about the uh, the guys who've put it all together and um yeah i just thought that was really nice touch and there was a bar there as well so you could after five o'clock the bar opened and you people could get drinks and th the main thing was i went down um on my own um you know just turned up literally uh, me <laughs> sort of thing and um you know, I was a bit kind of wary about whether I'm just going to be stood on my own for the whole time. But within an hour, I was, you know, sat down at a table with people I'd never met before, you know, five or six people around a table having a drink and deep in, in conversation about UFOs, which was uh, was really pleasantly surprising. And um, 
Yeah, special shout out to a few of the people who I met there who I've had conversations with on Twitter and so on. And special shout out to Nick, Agent Black Acid from Twitter. Um, great to meet you and uh, some good conversations there. And uh, Andy from that UFO podcast, obviously I've had Andy on the show and uh, spoke to Andy quite a lot over the last uh, six months or so, but really great to, to meet Andy in, in person, in, in real life, uh, you know, as it were. And uh, the same with Graham Rendell as well. Um, just nice to, meet, nice to actually be able to meet these guys and uh, in, in real life and have a bit of a chat there as well. And uh, also, uh, Dave Smethurst and Barry 2.0, who I didn't actually get a chance to meet, but I know you guys were there. Uh, I don't know if you're listening to this one, but if you are, how are you doing? And um, yeah, it was um, hopefully catch you guys next time. It was quite hectic and, you know, all different things going on. But yeah, hopefully next time I have a chance to meet you guys in, in person as well. And um, also just great to meet Ash Ellis, you know, who's the guy who kind of put a lot of this together. I've been uh, talking to a little bit briefly on, uh, on social media as well and uh chatting to ash and um, sounds like they've got some pretty big plans coming up for uh, for next year and for the future as well obviously i don't want to give any of that away uh, at this point but all sounds quite exciting from what he was telling me so i'm uh, looking forward to seeing how all that plays out so getting into the actual uh, speakers then so i thought we'd go through each speaker and talk a little bit about what they were discussing and um you know my thoughts on it and, and some analysis of, of the, the topic that they're presenting so the first speaker was graham rendell and um, I, I believe as well actually there were a couple of other speakers that were supposed to be on on the day and um, unfortunately the event actually had a couple of last minute cancellations so you know big props to Graham and Andy who actually stepped up right at the last minute and, and put some presentations together um, and uh, to be honest with you I was quite excited to see Graham and Andy do their talks I was quite pleasantly surprised in a strange way that, that those guys actually ended up doing the, the presentation Um so you know it was definitely uh it was definitely worked out for for the best in the end so as I say, Graham went f uh, first up on the on the presentation side of things, put together a, a really interesting presentation like I say, I sadly missed the first little bit of it, but um it is what it is. The bit that I caught was was really uh, really interesting, and I've talked a lot on the podcast before about Graham's book, uh, UFOs Before Roswell, which is all about the Foo Fighters, and uh, it's a very thorough and well researched look at the Foo Fighters over Europe during World War Two. Uh, as I say, I've, I've had Graham on this podcast doing an interview. We talked all about that that topic in particular for for you know about an hour. So you can go back and check out that episode, and I highly recommend. To get uh, graham's book really really interesting read and um, it's pretty much the book that i've credited with getting me back into reading physical books as well because you know i actually said i think in the interview that i did with graham that i struggle with sitting down and reading actual books these days i used to read i was really a proper bookworm when i was a kid but i just haven't read for a long long time i actually still used to read i, I used to work years ago in blackburn and uh, i used to get the train to blackburn and every day on the train i'd read for probably about a 30 minutes 40 minutes or something on the way there and then same on the way back and the thing is with that is you end up getting you know over an hour it's about an hour and a half of reading time in every day and then what happened with me is when i passed my driving test years ago probably about 12 years ago or something now maybe longer but when i passed my driving test and started driving all of a sudden you can't really have that time to in your day to read books and i just got out of the habit of it but uh, getting graham's book um, it's, it's kind of took me back into finding a bit of time in my routine for reading physical books which is um, not something I expected to happen but since getting Graham's book I've also got a couple of other books and yeah it's, it's nice a nice thing to do of an evening sit down with a with a good book and delve into a, a fascinating topic but as I say Graham's book really really incredible artwork alone even if you just buy the book for the the cover artwork I'd recommend to do that it's um Olaf Rockner, I hope I'm saying your name right, uh, and um, Dan, Dan the, the Signal Dan collaborated on that particular uh, artwork and it's really, really amazing to see. And also it's got a foreword by none other than Sean Cahill, Minty Hyperspace, uh, which uh, I'm sure most of the listeners will be aware of. Um, so Graham's presentation, uh, from what I saw of it, as I say I only caught the, the 
second half or so but it was a detailed look with pictures um, explaining what the pilots actually saw and why it could not have been human technology that was around at the time and Graham went into quite a lot of specific detail about all of the possible um, technologies and weapons technologies and, and, and aircraft that, that it may have been but actually it turns out that it can't have been them because of the way that they operated and the specific times that they, they were actually deployed and so on. In some cases, they weren't even deployed. They were just experimental. And uh, it was really interesting to see it, you know, from the horse's mouth, as it were, and Graham going through that, you know, on stage in person. And um, at the, the end of uh, the whole thing, essentially, is that there's, um, we're still not really exactly sure what these objects were. It is a mystery, but that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? Um, you know, when you look at the technology of the time, there is nothing to explain it. These things appeared during the day. They, they appeared at all different locations, with multiple witnesses, and none of the technology at the time can explain what it was. Really, really fascinating. I won't go into too much detail because I definitely recommend that you actually get the book you know as i say go and listen to some interviews with graham and uh you know um delve into it yourself but um the crowd questions that were asked as well after the presentation some interesting questions and thoroughly enjoyed that that was like i say just a shame i missed the first part of it but it is what it is and then the next uh presentation was uh philip kinsella and philip is Basically, a uh, as he describes it on, on his website, is a clairvoyant medium and UFO investigator slash author. Having had many bizarre UFO paranormal experiences throughout his life, along with his identical twin brother, Ronald, he began to research the phenomenon on a serious level of investigations after an alien abduction in 1989. So it's an extremely fascinating story. Um, the account of his abduction involving uh, reptilian others so the experience that he had was actually extremely unpleasant and um, has haunted him basically for the for the for his whole life and again you know not to jump to any conclusions about what the specifics of you know what, what it actually means that he had this experience and, and what it could have been and things like that you know the extreme the 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 actual experience that he had has really stayed with him and there's no denying that it's profoundly affected him and his actual experience involved probing which is the old classic thing that the tabloid newspapers like to have a chuckle at and um, really really cold unfeeling reptilian others so there's also some um, artist recreations of what these things actually looked like and they look terrifying from the artist recreation and I found it quite interesting that that experience and, you know, quite a lot of other experiences as well are, are really in contrast with the whole love and light narrative thing. You know, love and light is kind of becoming a real phrase at the moment, a popular phrase that's getting thrown around quite a lot because there seems to be, you know, on the one hand, you've got the supposed threat narrative where people are saying that these things could be bad for the human race and so on and so on. But then you've also got a lot of people, especially within the kind of C5 community, people who claim to have had uh, unbelievably, overwhelmingly positive experiences with the phenomenon. And it's interesting to me that experiences like Philip's experience are totally in contradiction to that because him and many other people have had experiences whatever these experiences actually represent they were terrifying to the individuals you know even if you look at um travis walton again you know there's some debate about whether his story is, is being debunked now and things like that but he had an absolutely terrifying experience philip had an absolutely terrifying experience and many others did and philip sadly has actually been the um the subject of, of ridicule for years after going public with this story and it's very clear from what he was talking about that that that's profoundly affected him and and um it's, i think it's very sad that this happened and i think that links to why ridiculing experiences in general is bad you know and that's why i've been um careful with certain witness accounts and things such as like Anjali is the obvious one that everyone's talking about at the moment the thing is I, I believe you have to be careful because no matter how ridiculous you think that that person's account is 
it's important to sort of set an example to avoid the kind of next experiencer from staying in the closet. I mean, again, there's different ways to look at it. And I actually understand people who want to take a bit more of a confrontational approach. I've seen a lot of people calling out on Charlie and things like that. And there's calling out and then there's kind of like really just slating somebody and, and bullying, basically. And I, I don't definitely going over that line into bullying and just using it as an excuse to slate somebody, you know, is not what I I think is the right way to approach it at all but I also understand the people who have been quite direct about um, you know calling it out as, as potentially like a scam or something like that but my viewpoint is that no matter how ridiculous you think it is as I say it's, it's more important to set an example that we're not going to ridicule people who come out with experiences because that that approach might actually encourage you know people to come out with like dodgy accounts for attention or for profit or whatever it might be but at the end of the day i'd rather encourage everybody to feel like they can come forward with their accounts and stories and then it's up to us to use critical thinking to actually decide which ones you think are, are worth taking more seriously and which ones are not at the end of the day you've got to take the rough with the smooth you know you can't ridicule one experiencer and then wonder why other experiences don't come forward with the stories because this is a mad topic you know it's a crazy bizarre topic and at the end of the day you know if we want people to come forward with these stories which are unbelievably you know strange and bizarre you know we can't ridicule people when they come forward with a story that sounds strange and bizarre can we but as i say there's a line to be drawn with it you know but i, I don't think it's a case of let's you know take the mickey out of this person so that they run for the hills if you don't believe their account i think you just ignore it if that's the case and you just choose which ones to take more seriously and um, based on your own critical thinking of you know weighing up all the options looking into it with an open mind don't go into it with the thing of i've already decided that this is a legit case or a not legit case just look at it for what it is and if you put a lot of stock into that and you, you know you, you think it's a fascinating case then great and if you don't just completely ignore it don't give it the light of day that's kind of how i look at it i mean again i might be wrong maybe i'll change my mind in six months when i've been looking into this stuff more i don't know but at the moment that's i think the best way because you know for, for one we don't want to be ridiculing people and putting through people through the things that philip has sadly had to go through with the the tabloid media you know mercilessly using him as the the butt of the jokes and uh, obviously that has a knock-on effect where the public then think it's okay to slate the guy and that that's just not something that we want is it so um, how, how, having said all that though I, I think at the end of the speech uh, it kind of took a little bit of a turn towards like conspiratorial thinking, you know, conspiracy theories. And me personally, it's just not an area that I really buy into. You know, being totally honest, I mean, it's like when you look at the the shambolic handling of things like Brexit and the COVID pandemic, you know, and, and loads of other things as well. The majority of things, basically, like the climate crisis and all the rest of it. Do we really think that these people who are in charge of doing all of these shambolic, you know, handling of various different things that have come up, do we really think those people could orchestrate a, an unbelievably complicated conspiracy spanning decades? You know, I kind of find it a bit doubtful. You know, of course, at the end of the day, people who tend to believe conspiracy theories and so on would say that Brexit and COVID, etc., is all part of the conspiracy and, and this kind of thing. So there's always that kind of, you know way of looking at it but at the end of the day i think uh, as nick actually said at the event which was kind of later quoted by andy when he was doing his his uh, his, um, his questions after his presentation um, most of the time in big corporations etc or any big organizations at all the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing and, and that that basically sums it up for me i don't think you know that there is this like shadowy you know organization behind the scenes in government that are steering the whole world down a certain path and i think there was bits of the um the speech by philip that kind of were tended towards that a little bit towards the end which is kind of unrelated really to his actual experiences and things but that side of it with conspiracy things i don't really you know tend to put a lot of faith into um i think what he was saying is that they're, they're trying to um 
what was the the way that he put it now they're trying to remove our sense of individuality to create a hive mind and i've talked about on the podcast in the past that i think that um the possibility of a hive mind occurring is quite a, a a probable outcome of the way that our technology is evolving but i don't think there's an actual organization of people behind the scenes actively steering humanity towards that because i just don't think they've got the organization in place to actually do that i think that if you look at the way they handle events that extremely important events for our society they completely you know they go completely wrong with that every single time it never works out very well it's disorganized it's chaotic and if they can't even handle things like that how are they going to handle literally steering the fate of humanity across the whole world you know to me it doesn't make a lot of sense that side of things but like i say overall um really really interesting and um definitely be trying to uh, check out some more uh, things by philip some interviews and and uh and see how it goes from there so then uh, it was next up was andy from that ufo podcast and uh, Andy's uh, presentation was basically to show his um, Lou Elizondo interview from, I think it was February this year, so it was going back quite some months now. But um, I found it actually really interesting to go back and watch that interview again, because for me, when I initially heard that interview, that was way before I started my podcast, and it was I was already kind of deep in the topic at that point, but not as deep as I am now and there's a lot of things I've learned and other characters that I've become aware of within the the topic and you know just I've got a much broader version view of the of the topic now a much bigger picture outlook and I found it really interesting actually to go back and actually watch the interview again and also just the fact that it was it was played in a um you know on a big screen so you could see the footage I, I think when i when i heard it actually just listened to it so it was interesting to see the the visual side of it with lou and his reactions and so on and just when you're actually sat almost in like a cinema setting watching an interview with somebody like lou Elizondo, you can really pay attention more to certain things with the body language and you know you were literally just sat watching sometimes when i'm listening to a podcast i'll have it on in the background i'll be doing other things or i'll be driving so you, you're not as focused on it so it was really uh, interesting to see it again after this all that time and to to see it with a bit of a different perspective this time and uh, obviously it was really great of Andy to actually step in and he came across as a great and natural speaker on stage as well when he was answering the questions after the uh, interview was shown and um, I just wanted to go into a couple of things I actually noticed watching back the interview with Lou and I've made some notes on this and it's fairly kind of long so this is probably going to be quite an in-depth look into it but um, bear with me while I kind of go down this, this tangent so Lou's experiences uh, with the indigenous people, I think it was the Dakota tribe, but I might have that wrong, but it's basically some, uh, some Native American uh, people that he had had uh, a meeting with at some stage. And this is something that I didn't really notice very much when I heard the interview the first time, but I found it really interesting um, to see him in the way that he was talking about it. Now, what it left me thinking, and I mentioned this to Andy when we had a little bit of a conversation uh, after as well, just when we were chatting later on, um, is could that possibly have been, uh, you know, some kind of ayahuasca ceremony or some kind of um, mescaline ceremony, some kind of psychedelic drugs, basically? Um, a lot of indigenous tribes use ayahuasca and mescaline and things as part of their traditional ceremonies to basically what they class as contact in the spirit world and i must admit it's something that when i i remember hearing lou mention this way back then and at the time i was kind of like what i'm not sure about this but the way that my view of the topic has changed since then over the course of the last whatever it is like 10 months or so um or eight months whatever it is um this time around i found it a lot more interesting that and thing is obviously lou can't really admit that because he so it, lou didn't say anything about ayahuasca he basically just said that he'd had this really profound experience after meeting with the indigenous people and he, i think he mentioned something like a ceremony so he witnessed some kind of ceremony. so he can't admit obviously that he's taken psychedelic drugs there 
because that's really not going to help the cause. It's not going to help people's perceptions of him because as we know, in society, there's this massive stigma around drugs and that doesn't matter whether you're talking about cocaine or whether you're talking about LSD and mushrooms. A lot of people within broader society just look at it that it's drugs no matter what you're talking about which me personally find that really ironic because at the end of the day a lot of the people who are so supposedly so against drugs are also you know drinking coffee smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol which are all drugs aren't they they're all things which affect your perception of reality so it's very unusual to me that that stigma persists of you know drugs are bad but yeah a lot of people use drugs all the time it's just like which drugs and it's the ones that the government have told you are okay to take you know but anyway so lou can't really mention that he's taken some kind of drugs you know psychedelic substances or something and um, because of of that stigma that's still there just like lou can't talk about his own personal experiences with the paranormal or with ufos and whenever he's been asked about any of those things i've just mentioned he just refuses to go down that path because it would massively affect people's perceptions of him and the media's perceptions of him as well all of a sudden if he says, um, you know, oh yeah, I went and did a, you know, ayahuasca ceremony with the the native people, and people just say he's tripping out or he's licking toads or what, you know, whatever ridiculous stuff that the tabloids pick up on, and all of a sudden the whole topic is kind of plunged into disrepute, you know. So it's very clever of him not to go into it, but the way that he talked about it made me think that maybe that was the case, and could that be? you know something that explains the profound experience that he had there and it fascinates me how dmt and ayahuasca could actually be linked to to the phenomenon in general and the way i see it even before kind of relating psychedelics to the ufo phenomenon in any way i've always been quite intrigued by it um so I should mention as well, I've never actually taken a psychedelic, so I've never taken mushrooms, never taken acid um, or anything like that. Um, so I'm not talking here from direct experience, but I've just found it very interesting. I mean, me personally, I kind of find reality as it is quite baffling sometimes. So the concept of being blasted out of a cannon into the universe, like you supposedly have when you take DMT, is perhaps a little bit much for me at this point in my life but and i've kind of felt that in the past as well so i've never actually dabbled but um the, but the, i'm really fascinated by it nonetheless and uh, the thing is it's the it's like the doors uh, of perception i don't know if uh, if if you guys have have heard of this but um there was a, a book by a guy called aldous huxley and um, which was published in 1954 and essentially elaborates on his is psychedelic experience under the influence of mescaline which actually took place a year before he wrote the book in 1953 and it huxley in the book actually goes into things that he experienced whilst under the influence of mescaline and there's one particular bit in the book that i've, I've always found to be particularly fascinating where he's talking about he, he, he sits in his garden and he, he looks at um the chairs that he sat on in the garden and the unbelievable complexity that he's witnessing from a chair almost overwhelms him to the point where he can't handle it and it really made me uh, made me think at the time when i read that and and the way he describes it is the doors of perception is basically if you imagine that your consciousness is in sort of like a room and all of reality is taking place outside of that room and all around the walls of the room are doors everywhere you look there's doors and your perception your actual you know consciousness is is right in the middle of this room with all these doors all around it and if all of those doors were opened at once your consciousness your awareness would be completely overwhelmed by the information coming through all of those doors so basically the concept of it is that the doors of perception can only be opened one at a time or maybe a couple at a time depending on what is actually needed at that precise moment for the survival of your physical body and evolution has basically dictated that 
if too many of those doors are open the mind would be overwhelmed and therefore unlikely to survive and you know imagine it like you know thousands and thousands of years ago if all of these doors of perception are open at once and you can experience reality for what it actually is you'd be rendered you know like in a trance basically and you just get eaten by a you know some kind of mammoth or whatever you know whatever predators they were at the around about the time so the human evolution is is basically fed the 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 narrow parts of reality into the mind that we actually need to be able to survive in this physical world and just kept a lot of those other doors closed and um you know i find that really interesting at one point as well is that the actual doors of perception is where the band the doors is where their name actually comes from because obviously they that band were around during the time of a lot of psychedelic experimentation and things like that and yeah so just a side note there i thought that was a, a cool point that i found out found out many years ago but so he's kind of stuck with me but huxley also actually relates um that kind of concept of the doors of perception to people with schizophrenia and other mental health conditions so you know people who have conditions like that it's possibly just some of the doors are partly open when they shouldn't be or fully open or too many doors are open at once and too much of reality is getting into the the consciousness consciousness of that individual and maybe some kind of mechanism within the brain of closing these doors is, is the doors are jammed open and reality is just too overwhelming and confusing for those individuals and you could relate that you know to a lot of other mental health conditions as well some of them a lot less severe and some of them a lot more severe and and also just you know each individual's perception of reality could actually be different you know who knows there's no way to actually be able to measure this but some doors may be more fully open or more closed than others and perhaps that affects the personality of each individual and and also very interestingly to me anyways is the the work of um huxley being influenced by william blake who's actually a, a an english writer um who was he was born in uh, 1757 all that time ago and uh, died in 1827 and he was actually a poet painter and printmaker um, he was actually largely unrecognized during his life but William Blake is now considered a seminal figure in the history of the poetry and visual art of the the romantic age and what I found um, really fascinating is well first of all Huxley's a lot of Huxley's terminology is actually borrowed from things that had been written about by William Blake um, all of those years ago and I think his work was quite influenced by him um, but what I found really fascinating was from a young age William Blake actually claimed to have seen visions so the first vision um, was possibly around the age of four when according to a, a story that was told he saw God when when God put his head to the window causing uh, Blake to actually break into screaming and an inconsolable uh, tantrum so Blake claims that he was actually instructed by archangels to create his work and they actively read and enjoyed his work and claimed to have seen angels and and um, um, many benevolent beings but also some terrifying beings as well one of which was actually described as, as the devil or, or Satan I forget which way exactly it was uh, described so again interestingly it's not all love and light here you know, in fact, if you look at ancient cultures all around the world, there are evil spirits as well as angelic spirits, you know, and William Blake there, you know, claims to have been visited multiple times throughout his life, all the way back in the late 1700s, you know, and, and they have, they've given him instructions in some cases and interacted with him and, and shaped his, his journey through life. And, you know, could it be that he was in contact with some others or was he indeed you know, delusional, as many of his peers and people around him claimed? Obviously, it's a fine line and impossible to say, you know, um, now, especially there's no way of speaking to the guy, obviously. So, But it, it does, it did make me think about quite a striking connection between genius and experiences of these others. So the recent article from Ralph Blumenthal, which is, you can go and see that at the Debrief website. If you type in the Debrief Ralph Blumenthal into Google, I'm sure it'll come up. Um, and uh, 
in that article, um, Ralph was basically going into explaining that many prominent creative figures have had experiences, you know, including there's absolutely loads that you can look into, but just to name a few, currently Kendrick Lamar supposedly has seen a UFO, um, John Lennon, and even going back, um, you know, hundreds of years in some cases to, to Blake, you know, the, these hugely prominent figures who have been putting out art in whatever medium it, it may have taken, you know, paintings, music, writing, you know, these, these people all claim to have seen others to lesser or greater extent but these are people who've shaped the future of humanity you know think about how influential kendrick lamar is currently think about how influential john lennon is and blake you know and the interesting thing to me is that these people have all completely it's not as though they follow trends and just do a version of what everybody else is doing this this is people who have completely reinvented the whole landscape of whatever art form they're in kendrick lamar has got such a unique style of music and he does rap and hip hop in a way that is very different to everybody else who's doing it. And, you know, it's all these complex levels to what he creates. And John Lennon was, you know, obviously massively influential and completely re rewrote the whole rule book really when it came to pop music and what you can do with pop music. And obviously everybody knows how influential the Beatles were and the Beatles music still lives on to this day as being very influential. And obviously we're talking about William Blake earlier, who's now seen as a massive influence in, you know, British culture and culture around the world. And this is hundreds of years since he was doing his work. So so what what it makes me wonder here is if creative people naturally have more of those doors of perception opened than many other people might have you know perhaps that gives you the ability to create but maybe also that what comes along with that is the higher possibility of experiences of parts of reality that most cannot experience you know those there's more doors of perception open to that individual's consciousness and awareness of reality and perhaps that's where the others actually reside in the parts of reality that most people can't see you know it's an interesting thought or another way of looking at that is maybe you could argue that the others have actually chosen certain individuals to communicate with and a kind of trade-off of being contacted by the others is that they're given certain insights which help them to create perhaps the others actually open certain doors of perception that weren't open previously or the more they open some doors more fully than they already were and that way of looking at it would certainly tally with various experiencer accounts from over the years including dorothy isaac who who was you know visited according to her account many many times throughout her life by others who actually gave her messages communicated with her educated her and actually gave her the ability to be able to see certain spectrums that humans certain parts of the spectrum that that humans can't see like for example Dorothy Isaac apparently um, was able to see microwaves which is obviously not something that anybody can do. Um, and also the, the, the supposed PK man, um, Ted Owens, who was um, basically the same kind of thing, was contacted by others and given certain uh, senses and was able to actually predict things that are happening in the future. And that would certainly sort of add up and make sense with, with what I was just explaining, that perhaps others are actually choosing certain individuals to, you know, what potentially you could say that that's to actually influence the direction that humans are going by picking certain individuals if you think about the abilities that that john lennon had to be able to influence people's thinking you know when you listen to a song like imagine for example which is a massively influential song that that has to that song alone has to have changed a lot of people's ways of looking at the world you know, it can't be um, understated how profound when you when a song really connects to you and the lyrics and everything like that. You know that that song being created has affected the course of humanity, and it's interesting to think that if others wanted to affect the course of humanity, that's one way to do it, isn't it? Just you know, allow certain individuals to see certain things to kind of put them on the path to. It's a thought you can't really prove it, but. I thought it was worth mentioning. Moving on. So another thing mentioned by Lou in the interview was 
the Bledsoes. And again, this is something that I hadn't looked into that much at the time when I saw the interview uh, first, but have looked into a bit more. And I'm going to be completely honest, I'm sceptical about the Bledsoes case. Um, one of the things that often gets thrown out as evidence to take their claims more seriously is that they have been photographed with your know, high-profile government people and intelligence, you know, personnel. And you know, uh, you have to admit, if you see one of these guys, you know, with somebody from the CIA or whatever it might be, it does kind of lend credibility to some of the claims that are being made. But in fact. Lou actually gets asked about it in the in the interview about meeting the Bledsoes and what he thinks about the Bledsoes case. So the Bledsoes case, very quickly, is uh, Chris Bledsoe uh, had some kind of a, a near-death experience and then was visited by um, entities which gave him messages and certain psychic abilities. I'm, I'm really kind of paraphrasing because I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but obviously you can look into it. And the family have had various different um, uh, sightings and experiences over over the years and apparently have been um, have been looked into by various three letter agencies as they say and um you know the, these three letter agencies have apparently been very interested to uh, find out more about their case and look into it and apparently there's knowledge and things that they can gather from uh, what's actually gone on there um but in fact lou revealed in the interview that the meeting was actually facilitated by tom delonge so I thought that was an interesting point. So it's not as though Lou has actually sought out the Bledsoes. He was been introduced to them essentially by Tom DeLonge. Now, Lou was polite about it, as he always is, being a true gentleman, but he basically admitted that there's no tangible evidence there for that case, and that's why it wasn't pursued and brought forward um, you know, by Lou and by TTSA. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, Let's be honest, Tom DeLonge goes down some paths that are a bit dubious. He goes down the paths that are not dubious as well, but you know, there's a lot that he kind of says that, that you question, or at least I do. And, you know, he's probably dragged in people like Lou to go down some paths that are dubious and also some paths that are not dubious. And as we all know, Lou has actually distanced himself from some of the things that Tom talks about. Um, again, you, you could speculate about the, the, the reasons why that is, but I think Tom often adds one and one and gets three, you know, in a lot of cases. And there's no doubt that he's been witness to some big conversations, but to be honest, I feel as though he probably takes tidbits of info and adds it all into things that he's already seen years ago on YouTube videos. And there kind of comes a point where everything appears to link together, but I'm not sure how accurate all of that actually is. At the end of the day, though, I didn't believe Tom DeLonge about things like the pedestrian emails, etc., and he proved me completely wrong there. And I've completely hold my hands up about that, you know. Um, so who knows? But the fact is that the Bledsoes, you know, haven't really presented any actual evidence, you know. And that, that of course, could just be the nature that the phenomenon avoids capture and, and so on. You know, it's a trickster phenomenon, things like that. But I think whether you believe the Bledsoes' experiences or not, the actual footage which has been put out, you know, through Ryan Bledsoe. Ryan Bledsoe is actually the son of Chris Bledsoe and he's he's recently created a podcast and he's been posting quite a lot on Twitter. And obviously I've checked out the things that he's posted um, and a lot of it is, is, you know, literally presented as, you know, blatantly a UFO craft or blatantly an extraterrestrial being and things like that. But... You know, I'm looking at it and thinking that footage is not compelling, in my opinion. And just the fact that they've been investigated by people from three-letter agencies and things like that doesn't really prove anything re relating to that particular footage or, you know, video footage or a photograph. And I think that it may be the case that Chris Bledsoe indeed did have a profound experience as a result of, you know, the NDE that he went through. And, and I think that there's a very strong possibility that the doors of perception thing I was talking about earlier, um, it could be that there is some link between near-death experiences or traumatic experiences and certain doors being opened slightly more or things like that. But I just think that a lot of the things 
that he actually learned that he experienced were actually found out through hypnotic uh, regression. And I don't really know how much that can actually be trusted, which I'll come back to that later. But I'm open to learning more in that area before I make much more judgments, etc. But for me, it comes back to the, the thing of it's a fascinating story. And the Bledsoe seem like nice people, you know, they seem like a lovely family. But the evidence that's been presented, it's, it's not only that it's not compelling, but personally, I, I think it's the type of evidence that actually used to put me off the UFO topic. You know, we're talking about blurry photographs that supposedly show a face, you know, but it's pretty dubious that meteor showers being kind of like passed off as, as craft and outer focus dust particles that have been presented as orbs. You know, and once I see things like that, especially with the really 100% certain caption of like, you know, I think there, there was one of some dust particles that, that that were being presented as orbs and the caption was, was posted along the lines of, um, you know, we've managed to take photographs of craft way better than any, uh, you know, government intelligence have managed to do. And then the picture that you see there alongside that caption, to me, it appears to blatantly be just dust particles being, um, you know, out of focus on a camera. And once I see things like that, I struggle to take anything else seriously as part of that story. And at the end of the day, you know, if you think that that thing is a craft, then maybe your interpretation of some other things that you've gone through as well is a bit off as well. Now, as I say, I'm, I'm completely open to being wrong. I've been wrong before, I'll be wrong again. But that's my honest opinion at this moment in time. And the thing was, the tone of what Lou was saying in the interview when he was asked about that case kind of confirms that for me, to be honest. I'm not saying there's nothing to it, but when you're actually just looking at the footage and the, the supposed evidence of these things that's being presented... I don't see anything in it. Anyway, moving on then. Finally got through the Lou Elizondo segment there. Let's let's talk about the uh, the last speaker and then we'll talk about just some general thoughts and things and conclude. So Dave Hodrian, I think I'm saying that right. You know, since I started this podcast, I've realised how bad I am at pronouncing different people's names. I thought I was quite good at that until you get a mic in front of you and you have to say people's names and you realise, oh, okay. So... Dave did a excellent presentation on screen memories and how memories of others can be masked by replacing the images of the others with innocent imagery such as children's cartoons or owls and things like that. So this is a fascinating area which I was not really that aware of before this uh, and I've noticed a few other people that went to the conference saying th similar things as well. Um, so it's a fascinating area which I'm definitely now I'm you know, I've, I've, I've seen uh, the presentation that I saw. I'm going to look into it some more. So I think on this one, I feel like I need a bit more time to actually digest what's being said and research it more. But I'll go through a few thoughts and things anyway. So first of all, Dave's a member of the Birmingham UFO Group which is also definitely worth checking out as well. And some of his other interviews and some other work that he's done um, seems like a really interesting guy and obviously puts a lot of thought into his work. And the thing that struck me here listening to the presentation is how difficult it truly is to pin down you know, the phenomenon. Because if there is an intelligence that can literally manipulate memories, perception and experiences... You know, it's, it's going to be unimaginably difficult to prove that it's actually there, you know, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's like if you're talking about a phenomenon that exists that can open and close people's, you know, doors of perception to sort of link it back to that, how difficult is it actually going to be to capture anything that proves the existence of this thing if it can manipulate our actual experience of reality in the first place? And... The more I look into the UFO topic, it seems that that actually is the case. And what I would say, though, is one area I do struggle with is this hypno-regression thing, which was quite a, something that came up a few times, really, during the Minicon, and um, I've been hearing about a bit recently outside of that as well. And I think um, 
what was uh, being spoke about during Dave's presentation was that um, many of these screen memories uh, are kind of only revealed during hypno-regression. So in other words, the, 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 the screen memory is the false memory that's put into place. Like, for example, um, like a, a cartoon character or an animal. And, and those are basically um, ways that the phenomenon actually um, disguises the true reality. Um, in order to, you know, give you a slightly different um, perception of them, either during the experience or that's planted into your memory afterwards, so that when you think back on it, you can't remember what actually happened. You just remember this sc- this screen memory. And the thing is, is if you ask somebody though that's in a susceptible state of mind, like you've just been put into a, a, a quote unquote trance uh, for a, a hypnoregression session, you know. If you imagine peeling back the face of a cartoon character in your memory, it does kind of seem possible that there could be something quite scary hiding underneath. I mean, if you just think of your favourite cartoon character from when you were a kid and then peel back the face of that cartoon character, it's probably not going to be something that nice underneath there, is it? And if you're in a susceptible state of mind and somebody basically essentially kind of round the houses tells you to then peel back the, the cartoon character's face probably something quite scary and unnerving underneath that it's quite unlikely that or at least in a lot of cases it's quite unlikely you're going to peel back the face of an innocent cartoon character and find something pleasant underneath i would suggest that that might be the case so how much steering and suggestion really takes place during these hypno regressions and that's something i'm I'm not really going to make a judgment on right now because i've not looked into it enough so it's something that I'm thinking of looking a lot further into soon. Um, and, you know, it's, it's another little pearl of wisdom from uh, Nick, uh, Agent Black Acid again at the conference, was that I keep saying conference. I don't know if it's actually supposed to be convention or conference, you know, the mini con. But and it is what it is anyway. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, the, the pearl of wisdom was that the UK medical professions put a lot less faith into hypno-regressions And in the US, it is a lot more popular. Now, when you note that medical professionals in the States earn large sums of money for treatment, and they don't in the UK because everything medical treatment-wise is is free, although there is private and medical care as well, but the majority of medical care in the UK is done on the NHS. And, you know, that could be a big part of the reason why it's taken a lot more seriously in the states because they're earning a lot of money from it and one of the most prominent uh, hypno-regression people out there is Barbara Lamb and Barbara Lamb has done thousands of hypnotic regressions on experiences people who claim to have been abducted and to be honest I would suggest definitely to go have a look because there's a lot of people who I've been um, checking out in the UFO topic who actually do place a lot of emphasis into the work that Barbara Lamb does and I've only actually seen the Anjali regression. And I, I don't know. Again, I might just be coming at this from a point of view of I'm not really knowledgeable enough to make a judgment at this point. But it did seem quite unscientific to me the way that it was being uh, conducted. And I don't know. It's something I need to look into a lot more, as I say, to find out how effective regressions really are. But one thing that. I looked into when I was making the notes for this podcast is on Barbara Lamb's uh, website there is the following quote quote each regression session is scheduled for three hours and the fee for each session is $250 sessions can be in person or virtual in brackets Skype unquote so she's clearly charging money for these regressions she's not just doing it for the you know which again is fine you know i'm not slating anybody's ability to earn money but when you consider that this this lady has done thousands and thousands of regressions each for 250 dollars she's made a lot of money out of doing these regressions so it's not purely in the interests of trying to get to the truth here there is that element of money involved and as i said when you consider that uk medical professionals don't really put any faith into these hypnotic regressions the money side of it comes into it as well a picture starts to emerge in my opinion but as i say we're going to look into it a lot more and find out more about this uh, and probably do some updates on the podcast as we go 
So I also wonder about these hypnotic regressions is, has there been any double blind studies, you know, proper research studies done on regressions and to what their effectiveness was actually shown to be? And, you know, if anybody knows more about that, let me know, because I'd be very interested to hear. I'm totally open to them, you know, to finding out actually it's been really proven quite thoroughly that they are effective. If that's the case, it changes my opinion completely. Um, but as I say, I've not been able to find anything of that nature so far. And what I would be really interested to see if there's been some kind of studies done, you know, with like a placebo group kind of thing. So you've got like, say, 100 people who have had, um, you know, extraterrestrial experiences, abductions, whatever, 100 people who claim to have never had, and then 100 people who are like, um, you know, making up a story specifically for the uh, to see if the the regression can can um, can uncover the fact that their story is not true, you know, and they've done it. They've they've created like a fabricated story or something, and it, it's only really in a study like that you can actually find out if it's genuinely the case or not. Because if you're only going to be regressing people who have claimed to have had this experience, obviously the thing that you're going to be accessing is their account that they've already pre decided is the case. Uh, or in some cases there may be new details that emerge that actually you're kind of steering them towards so i think um, i'd be really interested to find out whether or not proper studies have been done on regressions and i just need to look into it more so that's something i'm quite excited to to read up on more but like i say anybody else who's got some info on that just let me know you know it'd be great to hear from you it's at ufo thinker on twitter uh, ufo thinker at hotmail.com if you want to email me um and uh yeah be interested to hear from you so in conclusion then um, to wrap it up for for today's episode um fantastic event as you can see there it's left me with loads of things to think about and it's been really interesting to um you know to come away from it kind of my head a buzz with questions really and great to to meet all the people that i met there as well some some great conversations were had and great to be able to put some faces to names you know it's always a weird one when you've been speaking to people only via twitter or on the internet in some way and then all of a sudden you're actually there speaking to people in real life you know and uh it's like when you listen to a radio show and you don't have a clue what the presenter looks like it's always interesting to see what they actually look like because you kind of have some kind of idea in your head of what that person looks like and then when you see a picture of them often it's completely different to what you thought and um, i'm guessing some of the people who met me it was probably the same the same kind of thing but as i say i've been left with a lot of avenues to go down for uh, future investigations as well as some light being shed on a few things that i'd already been looking at so it was just a great experience and you get so much more nuance from conversations when you're there in person speaking to a real person you know it's the thing about twitter isn't it you can only put so much across in 140 characters and that's why a lot of people in the UFO topic in particular tend to do a lot of thread tweets because it's just so hard. The complexities involved and the nuances, you know, it's so difficult to get that across on Twitter, really. So it's just great to be in a room full of like-minded people and be able to actually have conversations about UFOs, you know. And uh, one thing I thought was absolutely hilarious as well was the, the conversations that you overhear you know, when you're walking around an event like that, because it's just, um, you know, if you're walking around ASDA, you might hear people talking about mundane day-to-day -day things and you just hear little snippets of conversations as you're walking along. And uh, the, the snippets of conversation you hear at events like this, um, I heard some absolute gems, which I can't remember, unfortunately. I should have wrote them down or something at the time, but it's things like you'll just be walking past and you'll hear somebody saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we definitely say to reticuli, and there must be at least 3,000 different intelligences in the universe. Yeah, <laughs> where else could you hear things like that? But, um, yeah, so um, if you do see a UFO in the UK especially in the northwest make sure you report it to ufoidentified.co.uk and that's the uh, the group that have put together this particular mini con and they basically compile reports and sightings and in their words you know the, the more reports they get the more data they can collect and hopefully get some answers to this mystery so 
I'm definitely planning on attending some more of these events in the future. Um, as I say, um, UFO Identified have got some some big plans. So hopefully, if you're in in the UK and you're in the area, um, I'll see you there. And and if you're not in the UK, you know, seek out some of these things. As I say, I'm I'm a relative newcomer to the UFO topic. I didn't really know what to expect, and I had a great experience. Uh, it was really interesting. And, um, you know, if, if you're in the, in the States or wherever you are in the world, um, you know, have a look, see if there's something like this going on and, and go down and, and have a look. What's the worst that could happen? So that wraps it up for today then, people. So I hope um, you have a good day, whatever you're doing for the rest of the day. And uh, till next time, stay curious, take it easy, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.